You may be seated. So thankful for our uh, uh, music leaders and worship. Uh, I know sometimes uh, uh, some of you come from places where maybe there was a rock band or something in your church previously. I, I am thankful for our mix at our church. I really am. I'm thankful for the hymns. I'm thankful that we are not abandoning these great truths, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that we get to uh, worship together and really meditate on the words of a song, uh, not that uh, we don't like to pick it up occasionally, too. Uh, just love the glorious truths of some of the old hymns. I would challenge all of you to, uh, to look into them more and meditate on them more. Uh, God uses uses them to minister to my own soul often. Our passage today, we are going to be looking at the glory of our Lord as He begins to face the darkness headed towards the cross. We can often see what a person is really like as they encounter the fires of trials. For example, the hymn writer Horatio Spafford had some very difficult trials during his life. He's the one that wrote the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. He was a prominent businessman in Chicago in the mid-1800s. He was a personal friend of D.L. Moody. But a series of tragedies began in 1870 that really revealed this man's heart. His testimony through these trials revealed where his true commitment was. His, di- his son died at the age of four from pneumonia that year. Then most of his real estate investments were, res- were destroyed in the great Chicago fire in 1871. Then in 1873, the Spaffords decided to take a trip to Europe. Horatio was delayed, and so his wife and four daughters went on the trip to Europe and on the way a ship crashed into their ship and killed their four daughters. An 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 2-year-old. Horatio was delayed, like I said, and he got a telegram from his wife saying, Saved alone. Now, at a moment like this, the true character of a person is revealed. We see what a person is like. When hardships and trials come. So as Horatio boarded a ship and as he passed the area where his daughters were killed, he penned the words to this famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let the blessed, this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The third verse, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The fire of trials and the agony of suffering were the crucible of the Spirit's work in Horatio's heart. It's in these moments, it's in these kind of moments that we see where his true joy was found. And today in our passage we begin to walk the long dark road to Calvary with Jesus. We're going to see the hour of darkness. The time when Jesus faced his greatest trials and temptations. The time when Jesus was betrayed, denied, rejected, beaten, mocked, and judged, and brutally murdered. We're going to see the great worth of our Lord and Savior. I'm looking forward to walking through this with you. Today we're going to see the glory of our Lord as a response, as he responds to the evil of his arrest. The first scene we will cover this week is the arrest itself. There are three groups of characters that are seen in our passage. There, These three groups, Jesus then responds to each one of them in our passage in Luke. So it breaks down real simple. The characters involved in Jesus' arrest scene break down into these three groups. The shameless betrayer, the foolish followers, and the wicked authorities. In this passage, we will see the contrast between the wickedness of the characters and the righteousness of the Savior. Also, we will make our way down through this passage, and as we are, we're going to see that first impressions of a scene are not always what is truly happening. We're going to see God's ways are often hid to the outside world during tragedies. But this does not mean God has stopped working. So let's walk down through this scene and examine Jesus' interaction with these characters. We'll start with the shameless betrayer. Notice in verse 47, While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He was still speaking, is how it starts. Jesus was most likely saying the words of Matthew's account. Matthew 26, 45 says, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We see here that Jesus, right up until the last moment, as he's arrested, is shepherding his flock. He's teaching them. He knew what was happening, he knew what was coming, and yet his attention is on his sheep, teaching them to the last moment. Remember, in the garden, he had told them to pray, temptation was coming, pray, and what did they do? They fell asleep three times, right? And he comes back and he says, arise, and he teaches them, even at that moment, that the hour is at hand, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. How would he know what's going to happen? Well, because he is the God-man. He knew it was coming. 
And he was teaching them. In John's account, he says that he tells them what's going to happen before it happens so that they will know that he is. He's the one. And they will believe in him. I believe the events of John 18, 4-9 happened right before Judas approached Jesus to kiss him. So in John 18, 4, Jesus actually steps out to meet the approaching crowd. You can read this account on your own, but I'll give you kind of a summary of it. And Jesus announces his identity before they arrive. When Jesus announced his identity, he used the Hebrew name for God, I am. Literally in Greek, he would have said, Ego ami. And in the process, his identification actually causes the crowd to fall to the ground. Literally, they are knocked to their feet or down to their knees. I believe Jesus was demonstrating his authority over even his own arrest. As they come to arrest him, he says, I am. They fall down and then he says, now who are you seeking? And they get up and, okay, yeah, we're seeking you. We see this in our passage in Luke also. Contrary to the world's view of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, Jesus was far from a helpless victim of -of out-of-control events. Jesus was completely sovereign over his own arrest. I find it so interesting that Jesus is the only one in the whole scene that we read today that appeared to be in total control of his emotions. He literally goes to his ruthless murder by his own free will. The crowd is totally emotionally driven. And the crowd, while totally responsible for their evil, were only doing what he was allowing. This is glorious truth. This is amazing truth. That Jesus himself could have killed them all immediately. All he had to do is say, you're dead. And they all die. But he allows his own arrest. Judas was preceding them is what your passage says. So we have here the evil one, Satan, and his pawn, Judas. Remember, Satan himself had possessed Judas in the upper room. Judas, under the evil one's direction, was leading the pack to capture Jesus. It's interesting, such a change for Judas, as we'll see. Judas seems to precede the group as if the leader, almost arrogantly, out to get Jesus. And just a little while later, he will be crying, throwing the coins back at the Jewish officials and then going and hanging himself. Motives are not given of why Judas had turned on Jesus. Money was a part of it. But it was not a huge amount of money to be received, so there must have been other motives. Judas hated who Jesus was. He must have wanted a Messiah that was different than a humble servant. Maybe he wanted a Messiah who would give him power and authority, and Jesus was calling for humble sacrifice. Either way, Judas was filled with wickedness and led by Satan. And this caused him to betray Jesus in a very shameless, a pitiful, a disgusting way. Notice it says, he approached Jesus to kiss him. Matthew and Mark's account 
stated that Judas uh, accomplished his shameless act of kissing Jesus. Luke leaves it out. Jesus to identify, or Jesus was going to be identified this way by Judas. Judas said, in effect, look, I'm going to go and I'm going to kiss him and then you'll know that's the one. It's interesting that most likely if John's account happened first, he didn't need to do that. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm the one. He identified himself. But Judas, in his wickedness, completely did not realize that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and he was going to go to the arrest. Judas, in his evil ways, says, let's do it by an affectionate kiss. Mark's account literally says that the kiss was a very affectionate kiss. It was as if he came up and he kissed for a long time on his cheek. This is crazy how shameful it is. This was probably a cheek, uh, a kiss on the cheek. This was their custom. This was a cultural norm for close friends. But in light of what Jesus, Judas was doing, rather, it was disgraceful. He was betraying his own friend. And he was signaling his betrayal with a sign of affection. Folks, do you understand what this would be like? This would be like coming up to a, a long-lost friend, walking up and giving them a big hug and having a knife in your hand and stabbing them in the back. This is exactly what Judas is doing. It's disgusting. It's shameful. But notice Jesus' response. And I am shocked by his response. Again, humbled by his response. And then when you read the other accounts, it's even developed more. It's as if Jesus speaks right to his heart with a question. And he doesn't hammer him. He doesn't give him a long speech. He doesn't give him a long sermon. It's just one question, and that one question just penetrates his heart to the core. It was a question that had the precision of a surgeon. Jesus does what he did so often. He asked the question to expose the heart of Judas perfectly. This was, contrary to some thinking, was a merciful act. Jesus, once again, was calling Judas to examine his heart. Let me ask you a question, just by chance. How do you view it when somebody confronts you? How do you view it when somebody asks that penetrating question that says, hey, were your motives right here? And you're convicted. Do you look at that as an act of mercy and grace? Or do you look at that as an act of judgment and you think you're better than me? Well, from the God-man, it's always an act of mercy. From the God-man, it's always this idea of, look, do you see your heart? Do you know what you're about? Do you know what you're doing? Literally, Mark's account says Jesus even called him friend. He called him friend, companion. Yet here, the question was meant to reveal to Judas just how shameful and wretched his actions were. It was a question that expresses Shock over the depth of Judas' sin. By the way, 
This is a good example of how we should confront people with their sin. We ask a question that they can answer themselves and see what they are doing. It's not about us. It's not about how you hurt my feelings. It, notice Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't say, oh, I can't believe you would do this to me. This is so hard that you're doing this to me. Come on. He tries to get him to recognize what he's doing so that he will see the weight of his own sin. I feel so rejected by you, Judas. That's not what he says. Jesus was not only betraying his friend, he was betraying the Son of Man. And Jesus uses that phrase, that messianic title. It was the title used by the prophet Daniel to describe the coming Messiah. It was the title of authority for the Messiah. And here was the Messiah's closest friend betraying him, and not just betraying him, but betraying him with a kiss of affection. Jesus knew Judas would do this, but Jesus mercifully calls Judas to reflect on his wickedness. It's no wonder that Judas was crushed by the weight of his guilt later and went out and hung himself. Judas knew Jesus was innocent. But Judas' own hatred and own sinfulness caused him to stoop to the lowest imaginable place of betraying his friend with a kiss. This was, as some commentators stated, truly a kiss from hell. The weight of this guilt led Judas to his selfish escape. Later we will see... Judas could not bear the weight of the guilt. By the way, this is not what Judas should have done when confronted by his sin, correct? Self-inflicted punishment is still self-exalting sin. It's selfish acts. Do you understand? One of the greatest and most selfish acts you could do is commit suicide. It's not an option. Do you understand, folks? That is selfishness. That is, I want out of this. It's about me. That's selfishness. He didn't own his sin. I cannot stress this enough. When confronted with sin, don't seek to punish yourself or elevate yourself by doing some kind of deed to make up for your sin. That's foolishness. That is actually sinful more. That's even more sinful. That is you exalting yourself and saying, if I do this, then I'm okay. Throwing the money back, killing yourself, that's not good. That's sinful. But he was crushed by the weight of the question. I wonder, you know, it's very interesting to me that you don't see much more interaction with Judas. You don't hear him at the trial. You don't see him. The only thing you hear is that he kills himself. He's guilty, he throws it back, throws the money back. But that's basically it. He's not there saying, yes, he's not saying, I'm the one that saw him say such and such. He doesn't give any false accounts, or at least it's not recorded. I think immediately that question crushes him. I begin, I think he starts feeling the weight immediately, and Satan moves on. 
Satan moves on to another pawn, the next one, to get Jesus dead and to crush him. Again, Jesus, however, shows great mercy to Judas in the ex when he exposes Judas and his deeds for what they really were. But instead of repenting and turning to Jesus, Judas is crushed by his guilt and seeks self-exaltation. So in this first character in the arrest scene, we see the great contrast between the merciful Savior and the shameless betrayer. There's so many lessons we can learn from him, from Judas. There's a couple. We can just see, or we can see just how sin blinds us from our, our, our sinfulness and our sin. Sin makes it worse, and then when we are blinded by our sin, we do absolutely crazy things. Kissing the Son of Man to signal that he's the one? This is how wicked we are. We can see also we should, how we should view being exposed to our sin. If we're confronted from, with sin, we must look to it to look to God as the one that provides mercy. If he's confronting us, then that means he loves us and he's calling us to look to him. But that's not what Judas did. We can also see how not to react to being exposed in our sin. How do you react, ladies and gentlemen? How do you react? You know, I was talking to somebody even before the service, they were saying that we really need to talk to our spouses about how they can confront one another. Spouses should be able to confront one another. It's a good thought. The unfortunate thing is, is we don't confront like Jesus, and then we don't accept the confrontation like we should. Correct? That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. <laughs> that just means we need to learn how to do it. Spouses, when you confront your spouse with the sin, it can't be about you getting your feelings hurt. It must be about their good and their walk with God. And by the way, spouses, when you're confronted with your sin, you must not look at it as if they are judging you or think they're better than you. You need to run to Jesus. Don't justify yourself. Can you confront each other in your marriage? If your marriage does not have that, it's not healthy. Do you understand? That's not a healthy marriage if you can't talk to your spouse and tell them. By the way, you that are single, God's often put roommates in your life just to help you get ready for this confrontation. Amen. <laughs> Can you accept it? Are you able to take it? And by the way, when you, run, when you confront your roommates, do you have their best interest at heart or do you just want your stuff the way you want your stuff? There's a big difference, isn't there? We see here, beloved, when our hearts are exposed, we shouldn't cover. Don't justify. Don't make excuses. Don't compound the sin. Don't blame your sin on others. Don't self-punish. Instead, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Confess your sin to God. Turn to God and humbly throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Seek Jesus and trust in His atoning work. Trust in the gospel. Don't trust in yourself. 
Then by the grace of God, commit anew to trust and obey the Lord Jesus. Get up and follow Him by the all-empowering grace of God that works within you, believer. It's really sad. But this was the last time we see Jesus and Judas together in a scene. I had a horrifying thought as I thought on this scene last night. This would be the last words Judas would have heard from his Lord directly. That question, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas is now, most likely, there's no evidence of repentance in his life, in hell, burning for eternity. Do you think that question has hammered him? Hmm. It was the most gracious act Christ could have done. He was saying, look at your heart. You are betraying the one that will one day judge you. You don't get that much from a seeker-sensitive church, do you? I'm not saying clean yourself up. I'm saying go to Christ. Your hope is in Him. We can see why Jesus would say these words. In Mark 14, 21, he says this, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. I don't know about these kind of verses. Do these kind of verses make you a little uncomfortable? Anybody in here a little uncomfortable about this? Anybody burning a little bit? You know, the seat's a little hot. And you're like, man, this is not fun. We have a holy and just God. We sang holy, holy, holy today, right? Holy, holy, holy. How many of you are singing, holy, you are set apart, holy, you are holy, God, or was it, oh yeah, that song, holy, holy, holy. This is so wonderful. <laughs> we look at God's holiness as just some other thing. We use holy all the time, don't we? We use that word. Holy cow is the one that we've tried to kill at our house. Holy cow. There is nothing holy but God. I think we need a, a fresh understanding of who we will face if we don't trust in Him. Don't we? Woe to the man by which the Son of Man is betrayed. Beloved, don't make the same wretched choice as Judas made. When confronted with your sin, turn to Christ. Turn to Him. Confess and forsake your sin and delight in the Savior's grace. 
So the first character we see in the arrest is of Jesus was the shameless betrayer. Next we see the foolish followers. Notice in verse 49 it says, And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This scene, whew, it brings, it makes me chuckle, but then it shakes my head, and then I see myself, and then it's like, oh, this is a great little scene. The foolish followers. We see the next characters here in the arrest scene are the foolish followers of Jesus. Now, in defense of these men, they are no worse than we would all be if we had the same information they had. Make sure you remember that. We often make foolish choices, and we have much more information than these men had. Notice those who are involved, though. And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Again, this is probably, at the bare minimum, Peter, James, and John. But most likely, all the other 11 disciples. They were sleeping, and now they are aroused to see the mob coming. They see Jesus go out and speak his name, and they fall down, and they're all back to arrest Jesus. Judas walks up and kisses Jesus on the cheek. The men immediately thought back to Jesus' statement about the swords. Remember, Sal, go buy your swords. <laughs> and thought, okay, the battle's starting. They looked to their Lord for the command to fight. They're doing good up till this point. 49, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? At least they asked him, right? At least they asked him, should we strike with the sword? But they make one huge mistake. They don't wait for his answer. <laughs> Master, what do you want me to do? I know, shwack! <laughs> One of them, Peter, did not even wait for the Lord's response. Instead, Peter is impulsive. That's the word for the day for the foolish followers. Impulsive Peter. And strikes the high priest's slave with the sword. The attack by Peter is once again a revelation into the heart of Peter. Peter may have had good intentions. But the fact was, Peter's good intentions outside the will of God was still... Sin. Peter's reaction lacked the wisdom of planning in prayer. He was just told by Jesus to pray, and instead he slept. So then he asks Jesus what to do, but then reacts before waiting to hear the answer. He reacts in the heat of the moment. <laughs> Peter and the other disciples had been warned repeatedly that they were to watch and pray, that they didn't fall into temptation. They had seen Jesus knock the opposing crowd to the ground. They knew that he could calm storms. They saw him walk on water. Come on! I mean, didn't they know he could take them all out by just speaking? They had seen him numerous times evade caption, capture. He walked through a crowd one time. Miraculously, they wanted to kill him. He just walked through the crowd and left. 
Do you think they should have remembered Jesus can get himself out of this just fine. He doesn't need me. But they forgot one main thing. They forgot who Jesus was, and they also forgot to listen to him. Peter, the impulsive one, springs to action. His motions got the best of him. He was moved to action in his foolishness. Peter's passion and tendency to throw caution to the wind led him to act with imprudence. He acted before thinking. He sprung to battle before listening. And he reacted without praying. So the fisherman tries to be a warrior. And his skills as a fisherman were thankfully better than his swordsmanship. Peter was reckless and hasty and brash. And now these characteristics got him in a load of trouble. Many of us are way too much like Peter. Is that us? Are we driven by our emotions? Do we make decisions in the rash of the moment or the heat of the moment? Are we hasty? Are we brash? Are we impulsive? Do we see a problem and say, oh, I can fix that? You ever done that before? (laughs) Somebody comes to you and says, I got this problem. Oh, I know what you should do. Before they can even get it off their lips, you got the answer for them. You know what that is? Problem. Pride. We all need to be careful of this, especially your pastor. We are driven by our passions. We are frail. And we are often prone to fail. Because we let our emotions dictate what we're going to do. We fail to bridle our thoughts and emotions. Now, by the way, some of you that are the quiet ones does not mean you're not like Peter. Do you understand? Just because you don't impulsively say it does not mean that you're not thinking it. (laughs) And if you're thinking it, it's just as bad. If you're sitting there meditating, oh, I got an answer. I know what's best. And you don't say it because you think, no, I'm going to be controlled here. One day... They'll understand. We're doing it inside our heart, but it's just the same thing as if it came out. What's happening in the heart is the problem. We fail to bridle our thoughts and emotion. We passionately move with often reckless abandon. There are many passages in the Proverbs that apply to how we avoid falling into this trap that Peter did. These are some great passages. Look at these. You ought to write these down. These are good ones to go over with your kids this week. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Truth. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Rules his spirit is self-controlled. Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. How about this one, Ecclesiastes 7.9? Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. 
That's why I call them foolish followers. The more I thought about it, this is exactly what we are when we walk and speak before thinking and praying. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I think often we as Christians, especially us quote-unquote long, mature Christians, think, oh, we've got the answer. And so we are slow to hear, quick to speak, and fast to anger. We need to be careful. There are some great truths found in these passages, but notice one, the one who rules his own spirit is slow to anger is considered wise. But the quick-tempered, the hot-tempered, the angry person is considered a fool. Ladies and gentlemen, back in Luke 22, we see Peter blew it. He let his emotions get the best of him. And his pride and desire to control the circumstances led him to forget the previous warnings the Lord had given him. I can't stress this enough, and I want you to listen closely. A disciplined man is a man ready for trials. A humble man is ready for battles. A praying man is ready for the enemy's attack. We must depend on the objective word of God, not our subjective feelings. By the way, one of the reasons why I really love that our church isn't just all about the emotions at the beginning of a service, is that. I don't want us to just drum up emotions in our worship. You understand? I can get y'all rooted, riled up. I promise you. I sold rainbow vacuum cleaners. <laughs> I had people go out and sell a $1,000 vacuum cleaner as a part-time job. Okay? they would work extra hours just to go out and sell a vacuum cleaner. Okay? You know how I did it? We had big meetings, and man, we were rooting and tooting, and man, everybody was fired up, and we were playing loud music, and everybody's like, this is great! Let's go sell! Let's go sell! (laughs) Guess what? They did! We sold a lot of those things. But it's not about that. Christian walk's not about how much I can emotionally fire you up so that you will go. I think sometimes it might be better for me to be reading my notes more so that y'all are like, okay, this is, I just got to listen to him. He's not going to do those things to keep my attention. Do you understand, folks? You base your walk with God on the objective truths of Scripture, not on your feelings. If you base your walk with God on your feelings, you're going to fall on your face just like Peter did over and over and over, especially those first three years of walking with Jesus. If we're not careful, we may cut off someone's ear also, not literally, but I would imagine our tongues sure can do a horrible damage, can't they? Anybody else flayed anybody with your tongue this week? Because you moved impulsively yeah listen every one of us is vulnerable to reacting the way Peter reacted here we often cry out for help and wisdom but charge ahead without meditating on what the word says now it's not 
I want you to get this. We're not going to have some mystical word from the Lord that he's going to give us. He wants us to wait on him, pray, seek the word, and then we will get our answers. Now, here's our problem with that. By the way, now I'm off on a tangent. I'm on a soapbox, but this is important. Very, very important. The whole charismatic movement, the idea of the emotions and the driven of all that thing and how it's great and this is exciting and getting words from the Lord. What it does is it creates this idea of I need an immediate answer. I need a word from God now so I can make a decision. Do you understand? But God often wants us to just wait. I want you to think about that. That goes countercultural, doesn't it? Does that go against everything we've ever been taught in our culture? Instant gratification culture. I want an answer now. What we need to do is what? Pray, seek the Lord, and wait. Pursue wisdom through counsel and pursue wisdom through His Word. Wait on the Lord. I think Peter just... If we put our place in the place that Peter did... When the emotion of the moment comes, we haven't meditated on, we haven't prayed, we haven't prepared our hearts, our hearts aren't ready, and then boom, the emotions come and we do what? Cut somebody's ear off. Do you understand? And by the way, it can't be waiting till the moment happens to make, be ready. Now, do you understand what I mean by that? Now, think about this. Okay, you're in the car, you're driving home, and you go, somebody pulls out in front of you, and you go, ah! Well, if your heart hasn't been meditating on the Lord and preparing and seeking the Lord and asking Him for protection from the temptation, you're going to react emotionally when that moment happens. But what Peter needed to do was stop and pray that you don't fall into temptation. So that when the thing happened, he went, God, what do you want us to do, Lord? You're in control. You just knocked them all down. <laughs> what do you want us to do? What I want you to do is go over there and wait because I'm going to die. You can even meet me at the cross if you want and watch. He had already told me he was going to die numerous times. Emotions blind us, don't they? How many of you are emotionally driven? Anybody in here? Yeah. Here's my call. Be truth driven. Be truth driven. Not emotionally driven. We are all prone to be impetuous, impulsive, reckless. By the way, in our culture, you have to fight against it extra hard, as I mentioned. Otherwise, we'll make a bloody mess, just like Peter. So notice how Jesus responds. Notice, in verse 51, it says, Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. That would be a case of Nasby getting it wrong. Stop, no more of this is a horrible translation. Better, it should be this. You ready? ESV got this one right. Permit this now. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Permit what now? This now. What's permit this now? My arrest is what he's talking about. He's not talking about permit Peter cutting off the ear. He's saying, permit me to be 
arrested. We know this because Matthew's account in 26.52 says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Thousands. Thousands of angels. How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that this must happen this way? Permit this now. Let this happen. So, we see in Luke's account, Jesus gave an exhortation to permit the arrest to happen. And we see next, Jesus miraculously heals the servant. This alone should have stopped everybody in their tracks. I mean, do you understand this? I mean, if we had our doctor here, he's probably watching. We'd ask him. How easy is it to put an ear back on and make it work? How many stitches would it take to put an ear back on? Probably hundreds. And Jesus reached down, most likely picks the ear up off the ground, or just reaches up and gives him a new one. (laughs) What's that on the ground? (laughs) This is... This is amazing. Do you understand? Everybody should have went, Oh, this guy's God. Everybody. But instead, they go ahead with their plot to kill him. And Peter and all the disciples run. Don't read Mark's count. Yeah, read Mark's count. It's actually hilarious. I think it's John Mark that wrote it. One guy ran so fast that they grabbed a hold of his garment and he ran off naked. Needless to say, we've got this idea of everybody's petrified, but Jesus is showing he's God over and over and over and over and over again. Permit this. I'm in control. This is yet again an act of grace shown by our Lord, isn't it? It's as if he looks into Peter's eyes and says, Peter, 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 do you understand I'm in control? Do you see? Look, I just healed the guy. You cut his ear off. By the way, it's, um, you know, church tradition says that Malchus, the servant, became a believer. The guy that he uh, healed his ear. I think it's very interesting how all of this unfolds. So, beloved, this is truly shocking to me that the mob continues on after seeing all this, getting knocked to the ground, and then, boom, he heals an ear right in front of him. And yet, we come to the last group. The wicked authorities. We see, and Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs against a robber while I was with you daily in the temple? You did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So we see here, we're given a glimpse of the leaders of the crowd and why they came out to arrest Jesus. They were the chief priests, the officers, the temple elders. In Luke 20, verse 3, these were the ones that Jesus had confronted and stumped them with the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? 
And then in Luke 22, 20, verse 22, he had, they had sought to catch Jesus, saying something wrong. But yet, he stumps them again. Then in Matthew 23, it records Jesus pointed rebukes to all these men. So these men, ladies and gentlemen, were coming out to arrest him because they hated him. They wanted him dead. And they pulled G Judas into the plot because he was their way to catch him in secret. I'm sure they sought to justify what they were doing. They probably told themselves, this man is blaspheming God by claiming equality with him. This man is, caused, um, is going to cause the Roman government to come down on us. And we will lose our country and our positions. So they justified their actions, but it was all purely evil, ultimately, at the heart. They probably thought this rebel had to die. But Jesus does this thing in his arrest to make sure that they don't get away with it. Notice what he does. Look what his response to them is. Have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. What's he doing here? What's he doing is exposing them. He's again doing it with that question. Look. What he's basically saying, if I was a robber, you could have arrested me in public and everybody would have said, yep, he deserved it. But I'm showing you that you're so wretched that you're coming out here to do this with clubs and swords at night so you aren't caught for what you really are. This is called, ladies and gentlemen, divine irony. They come out thinking, oh, we're going to capture this man. We're going to capture this robber. It appears to be one way, but in fact, Jesus exposes that the whole opposite is true. Everything you think and everything the world may see is in fact opposite. You say, this guy has to go, and the world says, you guys are coming out to arrest a robber. Why didn't you do it in the daytime? It's because you fear man. And it's because you're about being a man pleaser. He exposes their heart. He says, in effect, I know you. I know what you're about. And you are guilty. This is what Jesus is all about. You know, I love it. And I've said this before. Jesus says what it would take me an hour to say in one sentence. One question. And they're all condemned. They're all shown to be guilty. By the way, that's the, that is the heart of a God-fearing counselor, too. You can say a lot with a little bit of words. You can ask that right question. That's what we all pursue as parents, by the way. Not lectures. I know I do them. I'm sorry, kids. Please forgive me. It's that question that makes them evaluate their heart and see that they fall short. Do you understand? And that's what he does. This is glory. What a Savior. 
And then he says, I'm sovereign over even this hour. You see it at the last little phrase. Notice it says, but, and that's emphatic, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. What does this imply? It implies, I know it. I'm allowing it. This time is the time of darkness. This shows his sovereignty even over this moment. Yeah, you are going to carry out this evil plot. Yeah, you're going to do it, but I already know it's going to happen, and I'm allowing it to happen. God is not caught off guard by evil in this world. Ever. He wasn't when his son son was arrested, and he's not today, ladies and gentlemen. That does not mean that he says it's okay for them to do it, because he held them accountable for what they did. He holds them responsible for their actions. But yet he still recognizes his sovereignty over the issue. By the way, it's an hour. It's not forever. And it was for a time. And the hour was a short time. He was showing that he was victorious over all things, even the power of darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious glimpse of our Savior. Lord, we pray that you help us to apply these truths to our hearts. And Lord, that it won't just be an academic exercise. That we won't just get a bunch of new knowledge about the arrest of Christ, but that we'll apply the truths to our heart. We need you, God, for that to happen. Lord, we see ourselves in, in our own propensities in Judas and in the foolish followers and even in the wicked authorities. We are all too often prone to elevate ourselves and all too often prone to elevate our ways over your ways. God, we pray that you will help us to be teachable from your word. Help us to be correctable by your word. Help us to be admonishers for your glory, not our own glory. And God, help us to trust in Christ and rely upon him, not ourselves. We worship you, Christ, for all that you have done. We pray this in your name. Amen.